Welcome back, my lovely audience. I'm your host, Heidi Kumjan. Today's show is insanely important. We are talking about the biggest pesticide. It's found in Roundup. It's called glyphosate. You've probably heard of it because it is literally found everywhere. It's in our water, our soil, our air, and more. And it's causing a plethora of health issues like you couldn't even imagine. So I wanted to bring on an expert. And I couldn't think of anyone better. Kelly works at the intersection of pesticides, nutrition, and health as a writer, speaker, and policy consultant. She started the news site Glyphosate Facts, which explores and explains how our chemical agriculture system has led to an explosion in chronic disease. She collaborates with scientists, doctors, organic farmers, and regenerative agriculture technology companies to better understand and address agrochemical damage to our soil and bodies. How's that for an intro? Oh my gosh, you need to tune into this because could glyphosate be behind some of your symptoms? Get the facts by listening to this full episode with Kelly Ryerson, the glyphosate girl. She knows her stuff. Oh my goodness. With that, please join me in welcoming Kelly Ryerson. Hey Kelly, aka glyphosate girl. How are you? Good. So nice to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you and like I was just telling you, I saw you on a webinar with Dr. Zach Bush, who I'm a total fangirl of. And I'm like, wow, anyone he's associating with, talking to, putting on a webinar with, like, I want to talk to them as well. And I came across your Instagram then and your website and was like totally blown away. But if you could do the audience a favor and just kind of share a little bit more about you, the glyphosate girl, and even your story, because your story was very touching. Oh, sure. So first, Zach is totally amazing. And when I first got into this, this area, probably about five or six years ago, he was one of the few people that was talking about glyphosate and, and just how key it is to what is going on in our, just our entire community, actually the globe in terms of toxicity and our food intolerances. So I, I, had had, I had young children. I just really wasn't feeling very good at all. And I had all kinds of really just strange symptoms slowly coming on all around my body. And I had things like it started oh, digestively, but then I was also losing hair. And then I had weird rashes and I was so, so tired and really, and then would have spurts of like depression and really bad anxiety. And eyesight, poor, just, I mean, just so many strange, unrelated seeming things. It was really bad. It was getting to the point where I was just so weak. I really couldn't function. And I needed to have my parents help during the day with my kids and became really extreme when finally, like I was so exhausted. I couldn't really even walk. Like I couldn't support the weight of my body. Wow. And at this point I had had I'd gone to so many doctors, like just so many, so many doctors and specialists at Stanford and UCSF, and no one had any answers for me. And it, it really was just so incredibly distressing. I mean, it was to the point that I was trying any alternative therapy and, and all kinds of things. I just was not getting better. And instead, I was prescribed all kinds of various drugs and mostly psychological because 
because the doctors couldn't make the connection as to what was wrong with me, according to their specialty or knowledge, that they were dismissing it as being, oh, she must be crazy. So I was dismissed as having like major mental problems. And finally, so I'm on these different drugs that are really powerful. And one of the ones for anxiety that I was given was Valium. And like the second I took one Valium, you know, you're supposed to be able to spot treat with that. And I became immediately dependent. And so because my body was so thirsty for something and, and it was really, really awful because of course it was doctor prescribed and like, I'm not addictive. I don't even really drink ever, but immediately was dependent on that. So like, wow, mm-hmm. something's really missing from my body. But I went to, I finally was like, maybe I'm crazy. I went to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist happened to have intake blood work that had vitamin, a vitamin panel on it. And it came back. And I mean, I was just completely deficient. Like something you would see only in a third world pa- like person that was dying. I mean, just really, really low things in these third world diseases and stuff. And so I brought that back to my primary care doctor, who, by the way, was Harvard and Stanford trained. Mm. And she said, well, that doesn't really have any impact on how you'd be. I mean, that doesn't really explain what's wrong with you. I'm like, well, mm. but isn't that the core biology of what we have here? So long story short, I started supplementing, but then I also mm. finally found a physician that suggested that I try going gluten-free because lots of women in particular, which is interesting, seem to be having a lot of sensitivity to gluten. And I was like, okay, so I tried it and oh my gosh, like my world started to lift. Like I could not believe it just in a few weeks, how much lighter I felt. My eyesight started coming back. And of course I was also supplementing vitamins, but it wasn't that. Mm. And I went, it wasn't just that. And I went back and did like a gluten challenge. I was like, oh my God, like it, all these symptoms just came roaring back. So I'm wow. like, okay, so wow. we're really onto something here with gluten. So then that opened up a whole new world where I, so my sister actually was then diagnosed with celiac disease. And so we were kind of a team trying to figure out why do we have this? We went to a conference, to a medical conference, and someone said, and one of the researchers said, oh, well, so we don't know why this gluten intolerance is happening, but we do know from some studies that it seems that if you sterilize the actual gluten and you just have the gluten-sensitive people have that sample, they're not having the same inflammatory markers as they do when it's not sterilized. So there must be something else going on with the gluten. Hmm. And so I... I said, I went to the microphone and I was like, do they spray Roundup on, on the grains? I, Cause I feel like I've seen something like that, mm-hmm. the weed killer Roundup and no one knew. And they were like, what, what? There was a murmuring thinking I'm crazy. And I was actually really embarrassed. And I sat down because I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I think I just made that up. And then a scientist from General Mills pulled me aside and said, hey, actually, yeah, we do, or not we, but the farmers do spray Roundup on the grains and we know there's a problem. And I said, okay, well, that seems really like there might be something to, you know, maybe that's this epidemic of gluten intolerance. Mm. And he said, well, it's going to take two decades to change it, change their farming practices. And so that just, and then you start digging and digging. You start like, you can go, anyone can go on PubMed and start reading research and just the volumes of research about this, this pesticide is just enormous. There's a huge it's it's really a huge problem in, in public health. And around that time, then the Roundup cancer trials were starting in San Francisco, which is where I live. And so mm. I was like, oh, I'm going to go in and see what's going on. So I went to protest <laughs> against Monsanto, which made mm-hmm. 
roundup and there was no like I showed up and there was no one there like at all I walked right into the courtroom and sat right down with the lawyers and I'm like oh no one knows about this because it's been squelched from like the media Mm. and I ended up blogging every single day of that trial and just exposing everything that was coming out in the courtroom of all the horrible corruption with the EPA and and it was really fascinating Mm. in a quick course on like, okay, this is everything glyphosate. And at that point, I named myself glyphosate girl for my blog, and then it took off. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. Your story. I have, like, I've been taking notes here because there are so many little things I want to mention. First of all, props to you for figuring it out and putting these different puzzle pieces together. And it sounds like you're really cur- a really curious person, too. That's a great quality to have because you can, it sounds like you were able to, you you weren't getting answers, but you knew there was an answer. So you kept digging and digging versus like giving up. And that's really, really cool. The other thing is your story as far as the symptoms and going to doctors, things like that completely parallels my story as well. And I think we're we're not unique in that sense because uh, unfortunately a lot of people are very very sick in this modern world but i sympathize with you because the same thing happened i went to doctors and they i had all these random i'm not saying that i had the exact same thing that you had but what was similar to me is that i went to these doctors and was explaining hey i have these weird symptoms with breathing issues, neurological problems, the list goes on. But for me, mainly it was respiratory and neurological symptoms. And literally, I had a doctor, multiple doctors say, you're crazy, you're making this up. Yes, I have anxiety. Yes, I have, you know, that which then the chronic issues, which you might relate to, it creates this loop of anxiety, depression, physical symptoms, because you're just in this messed up world of of illness and no one's there to support you. So I don't need to go into all the details of my story, but I just commend you and sympathize because I've been there and it sucks. It is so, so scary. And you're so right. And you know, when doctors would say, oh, you're anxious, I, someone said to me, are you bipolar? I'm like, that, that isn't, shouldn't even be on the list. It's not like I was having any ups. But, you know, when they tell you that, it does make you more depressed and anxious. So, yeah, because you know you're not crazy and mm-hmm. you're just so desperate looking around, right? It's a horrible place to be. And so many, so many people are in it. And it makes yeah. me so sad because I think until your eyes are opened, you're going to keep on believing what your trusted doctors are saying to you because you're like, well, I, why wouldn't I trust them? They're an expert, right? Absolutely. But then I think, too, some people like you and I get to that point where, okay, I'm really not getting answers. I'm giving this a solid shot. Like I'm trying the medicines. I'm doing the different testing. I'm seeing different specialists, but nothing's happening. Like some people, the the lucky ones, I guess, do get to the point where they're like, I'm going to try homeopathy. I'm going to try seeing a medical medium. I'm going to try anything, like literally anything. You name it, I tried it. And I'm glad that I I was hungry for that. And I'm sure you're glad that you were Oh my gosh, I was so hungry. (laughs) I just have to tell you this anecdote. So in my desperation, like I was, I mean, you told anything you would tell me to try, I would have tried. Yeah. And so I went up to, I went up to sort of this hippie commune and this woman like promised and she did energy testing, which is relatively mainstream now, I guess, but I don't think she really was a great practitioner. And 
anyway, so she's like, oh, you, you definitely shouldn't have gluten and you shouldn't have this and that. And I was like, okay, so I'm believing whatever. And then she sold me 500 bucks of supplements. I got home and I looked and they all had gluten in them. Oh my gosh. Oh no. Oh, I've just so been had, but then I was so tired. Like I couldn't even think of getting back up there, you know, like, right. Like, okay. I just said 500. It's expensive because none of the stuff's insurance covered. Oh yeah. Which is a whole, whole other thing as far as glyphosate. Cause I want to go deeper into that through this whole episode. But my other initial thought was with gluten causing some of these different symptoms, actually, we're going to hold on that because I want it that this question that I have in this moment right now is pertaining to traveling to Europe and experiencing gluten differently. But before you answer that, and I'm sorry to be jumbled up and jumping around a little bit, can you just explain to the audience what specifically glyphosate is? Like, get just give yes. the basics, the simple, simple terms of glyphosate. Totally. So glyphosate is, it's the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup. And so an herbicide, you know, it versus an insecticide or a fungicide, it is for weed killing. And it has an interesting story because glyphosate was originally discovered and used as a boiler cleaner because it's excellent at chelating minerals or like collecting them, binding them together. And it was easy in like these metal pipes Mm. to put in glyphosate. It would collect the minerals and then they could clean it out really easily. And then around, I guess, like 1971 or so, a scientist realized it had really powerful herbicidal properties as well. And so Monsanto patented it as a, as a weed killer and then released the Roundup product in 1976. And so that's the same product that you see now in Home Depot. And, and it was used kind of moderately on farms for along for many decades or for two decades or so. And when it was introduced to market too, the farmers were really excited about it because it was considered to be much less toxic than other alternatives that they had used before that that were now banned and just horribly, horribly toxic. And so they were excited. And, and the way Monsanto was talking about it is that it only impacts plants. It doesn't impact humans because humans don't have the biology that the plants have that the glyphosate works on. So farmers were really psyched about it. And then homeowners were excited. And there are all these pushes in for residential use and schools and parks. And, and then in 1996, something really huge happened in, in terms of glyphosate. So Monsanto decided to put together and design these genetically modified crops. So that's what we know as GMOs. And they were called Roundup Ready GMOs. So they developed them specifically to be resistant to the effects of Roundup so that farmers could plant GMO corn, GMO soy, GMO cotton, and they could spray, so it would grow and they could spray the fields with Roundup and it could hit like all the crops, but they wouldn't die. So it would just kill the weeds around the crops. And so those are called Roundup Ready GMOs. And farmers were so excited I mean, it just, it was like a huge revolution. And so lo and behold, like just over the next, probably it was quick, quick adoption across the country. And 
Now you have about 90% of the corn that's grown in this country is Roundup Ready GMO. Most, I think it's like 85% or so of the soy is, and the cotton mostly is as well. And so now it's just Roundup everywhere on our agricultural lands, but then it gets even worse. And it also is a really common practice that farmers will use Roundup as a pre-harvest aid. So that means that at the end, when it's just about harvest time, about two weeks before hard or before full ripening, they'll go out and they'll spray all the grains with Roundup and then it kills the grain. So the wheat is all killed. And then it's easier for them to harvest because ordinarily, if you just let them naturally ripen and you're going to harvest them without chemical aid, then there'll be spotty ripening. So you kind of have to go out maybe several times onto the field to do the harvesting if one part of the field isn't as ripe. But with this, everything's ready. They can send out their combine and then they get their grain and they send it off to the mills and then straight into the food. But unfortunately, now the grain is covered with glyphosate because they sprayed it with Roundup. So it's estimated actually that over 80% of our dietary exposure to glyphosate is coming from this harvest, pre-harvest spraying. And it is just outrageous when you think about it. And, And so then- like, okay, so what's the problem with doing that? And they've been doing that probably since 2000 or so when they realized that you could do this. The farmers have been using it mm-hmm. as a tool. And the EPA allows that and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's considered to be non-toxic, except that we know from all the boatloads of evidence that it's very far from non-toxic. And this new world of functional medicine is so exposing this idea of intestinal permeability mm-hmm. and leaky gut. And- that's one of the really cool things that Zach Bush's team has is actually still working on and hopefully will be publishing soon, that they know the mechanism by which this combination of gluten and glyphosate is creating leaky gut and this explosion of autoimmunity. And mm-hmm. not only that, but one of the most distressing parts as well is that glyphosate, it, it, the same mechanism that the plants have, which is this path, it's a metabolic pathway called the shikimate pathway. And that is how glyphosate works on a plant to kill it. It shuts down its energy center effectively. And so they said, well, humans don't have that. Well, the microbiome has it. So the bacteria in our biome has that shikimate pathway. And so now studies have very specifically shown that indeed, when you eat glyphosate and it goes through your digestive system, it's killing the beneficial bacteria in our microbiome but weirdly does not have an impact on the pathogenic bacteria in our biome. So How now you have this whole horrible dysbiosis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, can you imagine what are the chances of that? Like that the, the bad gut bacteria would be like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> so oh my so God. it's so terrible. And then you look at that, you're like, oh my gosh, we're literally eating an antibiotic that is so toxic. It causes all of these problems from liver disease to kidney disease. It crosses the blood brain barrier. It crosses the blood testes barrier. I mean, and that's another horrific thing. I I sent three sperm samples out to a lab just to check for the glyphosate content and all three came back positive. And we know from the research that glyphosate causes sperm motility and early or decrease in sperm motility and early sperm death. So mm-hmm. each time I see a headline about dwindling fertility rates, I'm like, oh my gosh, just stop spraying the freaking grain with Roundup. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I never knew that about the pre, what was it called? The pre-harvest spray. That's actually disgusting. And I'm glad that I, I don't 
eat a lot of grains. And if I do, they're organic and hopefully regeneratively grown as well. But thinking about that and thinking about the amount of people that don't know and that are, or some that do know, and are eating so many foods, because it's not just like, oh, I'm just going to have a big bowl of wheat today. It's like, no, like that is going into granola bars, into bread, into cereals, so many different things, right? And Oh my goodness. Oh, just most of the things. Yeah. Most of the things we eat has it and not in small quantity either. Like the EPA just has put this huge high level of acceptable amount of Roundup or glyphosate. I say them sort of interchangeably just in case people are confused. The glyphosate's the active ingredient in Roundup. But they'll hear how much is needed for the pre-harvest spraying and then they'll increase the maximum tolerance according to that. It's not like Ugh. they said it because it would be unhealthy. They just change it according to what like the farmers want. Oh it's my so, gosh. It... So it's so, oh my gosh, it's just so bad. And another component of it that people don't really talk about, including me, is that it, so Roundup, in Roundup, there's glyphosate and then there's also something that's called the surfactant. And the surfactant mm-hmm. is a soapy substance that helps to get the the glyphosate on the leaves and to stick to the leaves and penetrate into the leaves. So the one that the surfactant that we use in the United States is called POEA and it is really toxic. So toxic that Europe won't allow it in their Roundup concoctions, their formulations. And so the factories make Roundup without this toxin and send it over to Europe, but we still get this POEA, which is also sprayed all over our grains and we're eating. And it is so incredibly toxic. Some argue more so than the glyphosate itself. Really? So I've heard of it just must be cheaper. But I didn't know it was in the food. It's crazy. Like typically so, that's so in the laundry detergents and stuff or exactly like soaps. Because I know to avoid that in like my personal care products or just cleaning products in general. But the fact that it is part of what they're putting on crops is disgusting. Again, I have so many follow-up thoughts and questions, but oh, yeah. while we're kind of on the subject of Europe, just regarding the POEA at least, is that the reason that people have less of a gluten reaction when in Italy or something like that? I was in Italy this summer and actually it was my first time to Europe and I have always eaten very, well, not always, but since I was, for the last 10 years, I've eaten very strictly gluten-free. But when I was in Italy, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try. I'm going to just try a croissant or a piece of bread or a bowl of pasta. And, and I did. And I didn't really have any kind of reaction. You but nervous? I, but I was very nervous and following what I will say is when I got home from the trip, I found that my immune system was really compromised and I was getting more than I, I got sick three times since getting back from Italy. And usually I only get sick like once or twice a year. So I was getting, I got sick three times in three months, but I, I don't want to like blame it on me eating a couple gluten-y things, but it's just a random tidbit of info. But going back to my question, I guess, why is it that when you're in Europe, you have less of a a reaction to gluten? Or is that just an urban legend? Well, it's so interesting about that because so many people feel that way. And I actually have been unwilling to take the risk because I'm so scared of 
<laughs> the repercussions. Yeah. yeah. But I had an accidental exposure. So I was in Copenhagen and that's the home of Joe and the Juice. Actually, that's where I don't know if you guys have Joe and the Juice. Oh, Joe yeah. Joe and the Juice. Yeah. Oh, funny. I didn't and know so, that. And so isn't that funny? So it was, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, this is a tidbit, but like it, when it was founded, they just had like gorgeous male models working in there. And it was a huge hit because all of these women would come in, you know, so smart. <laughs> So it was the Copenhagen company. So I went there and also it was just like nicer restaurants there with the exist their thing. But mm. anyway, so I was like, okay, oh, I have that gluten-free muffin. And so I had it and it was like the best muffin I'd ever had in my entire life. Like I just, I couldn't even believe it. So the next morning I was like, oh, we have to go back. And I said, can I have the gluten-free muffin? And they said, we don't have gluten-free muffins. I'm like what? Well, what did I eat? And they're oh. like, oh, that has gluten in it. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I was kind of glad that I was blindly tested, you know? Yeah. So I might have psyched myself out. Yeah. Oh um, my gosh. So so then I thought, okay, this is so interesting. So what is it then? And they do do some pre-harvest spraying. So it's not entirely that. It could be the POEA. Another big difference is the way that bread is fermented. It like historically used to be fermented for a long time and the quality, like the, the glutinous component would be more easily decomposed and it was much more mm-hmm. digestible. Mm-hmm. And so they still do that in a lot of parts of Europe. In the United States, it's like, how quickly can we get it out? There's no time to right. do this fermentation process. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be part of the digestibility yeah. p- piece of it. Maybe even in Italy too, because they're like so old school. That's why I felt a little more totally, comfortable right? because I'm like, okay, I know this is like really, really, really authentic and old school. I don't think I'd feel as comfortable somewhere else in Europe well, I don't know it was a gamble at the end of the day it was a gamble that is a big gamble. I took it I got engaged when I was there and I'm like you know what I'm just oh, gonna, I'm just congratulations <laughs> thank you I'm just I was intuitive I'm like I'm just gonna have a bowl of pasta and I don't know oh. but my immune system was kind of shot when I got home so I don't know I will say that my, I mean, maybe it's just because we've all been hidden away, but I feel like my, I too have not had so many illnesses in such a short period of time as I have in the last like five months. So I don't know, yeah, I don't know there, what's going around, but. There are other variables at hand than, than me just eating gluten. Yeah. So yeah. Although it probably didn't help. Who knows? I'm, I hope it was, did it taste amazing? That's what I want to know. It tasted amazing. Yeah. It really, it really did taste amazing, but I, it didn't make me miss it. You know, it oh. wasn't like, okay, I ate this pasta and this bread. And then when I got home, I wasn't like, oh, I really wish I could eat pasta and bread. I I didn't miss it. In fact, I almost liked that I just had that experience there over in, in Italy, kind of oh, well, really that's really small good news. scale. Yeah, I was just excited. To, but I'm a really routine person. So I can think I was ready to just get back into my regular routine of eating too i don't know well that's good because i yeah. think about that muffin that i had in copenhagen a lot <laughs> it's too bad it was so good yeah i mean the food was amazing especially in florence the pasta was so good but well did you go to the gluten-free restaurant that had that in florence that had amazing pizza and pasta and they I were don't, American friendly. I don't know if I did but i walked there was one i walked past and it, they had a big sign that said Florence's only gluten-free. Yeah, Yeah, there's one spot where they had a big sign like Florence's only all gluten-free place. I did not go there, but I went to, there was a lot of other little health cafes where they had gluten-free options too. I love that. Yeah, it was great. So 
this is a lot of good info on glyphosate in Europe and okay. gluten and all the things. Another question of mine is when you were sitting in on these lawsuits with Monsanto or with just with the glyphosate Roundup problems, what I guess were the main things going on that caused these lawsuits to even be happening? So I oh, yeah. have an idea, but how can we familiarize the audience with, I guess, some of these detriments of glyphosate yeah. on human health? So first trial was, so all of these Roundup trials have to do with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, so cancer. And there's a lot of drama behind the scenes going way back to the beginning. Now we know because a lot of the internal documents from this lawsuit were released in something called the Monsanto documents by the law firm that is really a great law firm. It's Wisner Baum. And they make a point whenever they do these lawsuits of making their documents public as much as possible. Oh, cool. So that we can see also, okay, so we can go and access and see <clears throat> what were the executives at Monsanto saying about the carcinogenicity of glyphosate back in 1996. Like, what were they saying? And what's so distressing is you see just how hard they worked from the very beginning, really, to make this lie that glyphosate doesn't cause cancer. To the point that they would pay and hire academics to write research papers that support that it doesn't cause cancer. And in some cases, fabricating those results in a very specific case where they lied and said that some studies didn't show tumors, but actually they did. And then went to the EPA and strong-armed them because they have such a hold with their lobby and just so much money at play mm -hmm. and got the EPA to buy off on it and say it was not carcinogenic. And this for years was going up against all this evidence that shows it caused non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so then in 2015, there's this group called IARC and it's an international agency for research on cancer. And they take different chemicals that are very common and not just chemicals, sometimes other things do, but chemicals primarily. And they assess, okay, what does the body of research say about the carcinogenicity of this chemical? And so it was glyphosate's turn. And Monsanto had tried so long to keep glyphosate off of that panel, but finally it made it there. And they said, after looking at all the animal research and like epidemiology and mechanistic data, they said, okay, this is a probable human carcinogen. And so that ignited this huge upset in the ag agricultural chemical world. And they were preparing, like Monsanto internally was preparing for that outcome. So they were ready to orchestrate a reaction and put out more studies that they bought. I mean, there's oh evidence they bought these gosh. studies, paid scientists to do it. They bought articles in newspapers to talk about how it's safe and how crazy activists are and these other people. And, and so at that point, there was finally this very organized wide body of research specifically about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that the attorneys could depend upon and actually take in front of a jury. And so this trial was the first time that this Monsanto, which is a very notorious company, it's now been acquired by Bayer Pharmaceutical Company. But Lovely. at the time, actually, that was happening right at the time that the acquisition was happening right around the time that the cancer trials were going on. 
And so that was a huge liability that Bear ended up taking on. But anyway, so the, the trial went down and the jury unanimously said this causes cancer. So that first trial went through and, and the poor plaintiff had exposed in his job as a pesticide applicator at a school, at an elementary school. And only like two times he was fully drenched, but the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma popped up really quickly and very, very severely. And it was absolutely insane to sit there and hear Monsanto say that that the cause, because very clearly it was like this topical exposure, which so Mm -hmm. many residential users of Roundup have, and not even just users like you can be out at a park and you can be exposed and kids are exposed on these schoolyards where it's sprayed and it's you know I worry about my dogs walking on sidewalks that have had runoff of Roundup mm-hmm. because it can go up through their paws and so and golf the, courses during too. golf courses totally mm-hmm. and the exposure and they showed the way this POEA and glyphosate combo cuts like right into the skin and delivers the glyphosate into the bloodstream so it's so horrible. And so then there were two more trials that went and the juries all also said Monsanto's guilty of hiding this evidence. And then what happened is there's a huge, huge settlement that went towards to tons of plaintiffs. And you probably, you might've even seen ads for like, do you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? So the attorneys were advertising on TV. Mm-hmm. And so tons and tons, like to the tune of billions of dollars of settlements have gone to plaintiffs, but there are a few plaintiffs that had weak cases. So meaning that they had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but it was hard to prove that it was from Roundup. And so Bayer now still takes on those cases and then makes a big public scene of it. And they say, see, it doesn't cause cancer. And so mm. now they're like, we've won so many trials in comparison, but that's just because they settled all the millions that, you know, or not millions, but all the, the probably a hundred thousand cases that definitely caused their cancer. So oh. it's just so sad. And when you start <clears throat> to see this happen just with this one chemical, you start opening your eyes to so many different toxins and things that like, you're like, oh my gosh, is this real? Is it actually really bad for me? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's a lot of questions. Yeah, I know. And glyphosate does feel like such a prevalent one though, despite there being so many. It's wild that glyphosate is such a powerful one and one that we're unfortunately being exposed to at scary, scary numbers. So the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and these documents, will I be able to link the Monsanto papers? Yeah. That's, yeah, that's all the public? Okay. That's completely wild, but I'm not surprised. You know, just another big company paying out a government agency or universities to get their way in a sense. And it's like, okay, if this is happening with glyphosate, what else is that happening with? And it's totally clearly happening all the time. Like the trans fat and seed oils. That's another one where the American Heart Association paid out Procter and Gamble. Oh, did they really? Oh, I, I haven't even looked into that. I just have been like, no seed oils. Yeah, or I'm sorry, it was Procter and Gamble paid the American Heart Association in the I think 60s or 70s when the American Heart Association was brand new. They wanted to get some recognition, and Procter and Gamble had Crisco, which started out as a product to make candles and soaps, and they realized it wasn't profitable for that, so they decided to remarket it as a food item. And they had a lot of money 
and got together with the American Heart Association, donated, I think, $1.7 million, which was a lot at the time, for the American Heart Association to kind of come out against animal fats and healthier oils. So that's why they're over the years, even now, today in 2023, there are still people that think eating canola oil is healthier than butter, you know, organic grass-fed butter or coconut oil, some of those ancient healthy things. So the, the point is there is a lot of weird, scary, special interest, I guess, on the subject of hope <laughs> because this stuff is so heavy. Where, I guess, do you see this going? Obviously, we're so glad for, well, I am so glad and others are so glad to have people like you exposing this kind of stuff as well as Dr. Zach Bush and his team. Where do you see all of this going? Is there hope for the future? Like, what are the positives that you can kind of predict for the future? So this is like the point in any talk when Zach goes like super spiritual, but <laughs> that's not as much me, even though I do meditate because I, I enjoy that. <laughs> but like from, practice, from this lifetime on this earth situation, I, so I, and it sounds like you two have started looking at regenerative agriculture and yes. there's something so wonderful about it. I mean, I now have been, I volunteer on a farm. I am meeting so many like-minded people and a lot of young people that are interested in this. And I feel really excited because they get it. Like people are understanding that we have to change our farming practices. And maybe even more importantly, there are organizations that are coming out to financially support farmers in making that transition mm -hmm. over to regenerative organic uh, farming, because that a lot awesome. of times is the hiccup. It's like farmers shouldn't have to give up their farm because they can't afford to make the change. That's ridiculous. But right, right. another very exciting thing is that the USDA is changing its tune big time in terms of funding. Just five years ago, there were 27 people total in the organic department at the USDA, <laughs> 27 for the entire country. <laughs> and the USDA, if you're ever in DC and you drive by the most mammoth building you'll drive by, it's just blocks and blocks is the USDA. And so you think about this enormous organization and yeah. how little was dedicated to this stuff. But so now, so Tom Vilsack, who's the secretary of agriculture, he actually was Mr. Monsanto under Obama, I believe. And so when he was put back into power and when Biden took over, it was really, really depressing for people like me because they're like, it's just going to be more of the same. Mm -hmm. And then he was giving a talk and he said his grandson can't have dairy like he can't have, or like if he had butter, then he can't have cream because he doesn't tolerate dairy. Mm. And it opened his eyes to the fact that people are having food intolerances. And so thank goodness, right? Because it usually has mm -hmm. to impact you personally before you care. And tons of money has now been diverted into organic farming. And that just makes me so excited <clears throat> because anyone who's taking on regenerative organic knows these problems with these toxins. Wait, so, so Mr. That, Monsanto... Yeah. Just to interrupt for one second, he flipped his tune, like completely. He flipped his tune. Wow. I mean, I'm sure he's there to support, but <clears throat> I mean, just for some like reference, when I I was working on a documentary and I interviewed the head of the USDA Organic Department, Jennifer Tucker, and I was trying to get her to say Roundup is not good, but she wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And I was asking in all different ways, and her you know political response was. 
well, it's just great. People can have choices. If they want organic, they can get it. If they don't care about that, they can get this other thing. And I'm like, who would choose to not have clean food if they knew, right? Right. right. <laughs> like, like if people knew that organic, oh, they're not going to have these toxins that make them super sick and desperate yeah. at the doctor. Like, yeah, like, going to pick that. Like, hey, lady, how about we prevent the use of these toxins so that yeah. people don't get sick? Because most people don't know about this stuff. They blindly no, trust. totally. So. so then I said, well, do you eat organically? And she like had to ask the people that were there. She's like, is it okay for me to say yes, I do? I oh, mean, it's so controlled, this message. Oh my gosh. So actually, what documentary was that? It's one that is all about Roundup. And now actually it's in the hands of, I'm hopefully going to be able to release it in small like chunks because I think people aren't really sitting for long documentaries anymore. Mm. So just like tall, small five to 10 minute snippets of these kinds of episodes that I think are so interesting. Oh my gosh. Well, keep me posted on that. I really want to totally. watch it. Oh, I will. <laughs> I will. So, but yeah, so Mr. in the Rodale Institute is a really preeminent group yes. that has supported organic farming forever. And I went to, uh, they had their first ever food as medicine conference. And so it was oh. a bunch of doctors and I snuck my way in there because mm -hmm. I'm not a doctor. But just hearing this movement that is in large part being funded by the government to better understand what the impacts are of food. And, and we visited a hospital that so amazing, like a mainstream hospital, but they've put a farm next to it and Rodale is supporting that farm and they are using the organic fruits and veggies that they're growing for feeding the patients in the hospital. Brilliant. So it's so neat. Brilliant. And so I just see these small things happening and I just feel like in 10 and 20 years, it's going to catch on more and more because of people like you too, like where you're so sick, you're like, I'm not going to take this. What is it that's mm -hmm. causing this problem? It's mm -hmm. these toxins. So right. that makes me really hopeful. Yeah. I agree with you. And I, the unfortunate thing is people are, I think, you know, at least in these right now and maybe for the next five years or X number of years, people are going to continue to get sicker and sicker. But I think there comes a point where enough is enough and we got to get, we got to make changes and then enough people are going to be so sick and so open to new things that then we'll finally like get over that hump. And there are a lot of young, so there are a lot of young people. I mean, but I'm biased. I'm 26 years old and I, my fiance and I were so, so passionate about this kind of thing. And we have a good community of even people our own age that are also really interested and really excited about supporting smaller scale organic and regenerative farms and even... I, I think to the younger generations and what maybe I shouldn't, I guess, label this into an age group, but speaking for my fiance and myself, we are willing to drive further or spend more money to get the better product that is supporting our own health and also the environment. And I think- Oh, I that think makes me exciting, so happy so. because I think like, so I would say that People my age are not, and I'm 46, people my age are going to be a lot harder to change <laughs> because I'm sort of the weirdo in my friend group with all this. And meanwhile, I live in California, so it shouldn't be that odd. But but what I see is my teens really taking it on. And so I'm Good. so excited because they've seen it. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. And mm -hmm. you know, if I, were, if I were you, I'd be like, I'm getting a farm one day. 
like yeah. so fun. Oh yeah, we you know? we are totally into it. We're actually having our his parents actually have 300 acres of certified organic farmland in Wisconsin. What? Yeah, so oh. they they his dad, I guess I don't need to share all the details with my audience, but we're actually thinking about having our wedding on that oh. farmland too. So yeah. Oh, that our sounds so farm perfect. and farmland and all that kind of stuff is is definitely in our future. So it's fun. Oh, that's stuff. so exciting. Yeah. And it take it took a while for them to get the, all their land converted and certified and all of that. But I think it was like a five year What inspired them to do that? Process. So his dad is very, very into nature and environmentalism and he saw some land go for sale. Really wanted to, I guess restore the land and give back. I think ultimately it was just the values of his parents in in wanting to just really give back to the land because the land that it's on, the area of Wisconsin that it's on is the most beautiful part of Wisconsin. It's called the Driftless region. Actually, that's where Organic Valley started. And there's a lot of other big organic brands that have started in that kind of area. But the unglaciated area is this beautiful, beautiful part of Wisconsin where the glaciers didn't pass through. So there's rolling hills and stone formations everywhere. And a lot of it looks European. And so anyways, it's just this abundant, beautiful place. And I think his dad couldn't fathom the idea of a developer coming out there and just putting man's stamp on things. So yeah, they're involved with oh, a lot beautiful. of- Yeah, they're involved involved with a lot of just restorative practices for the farmland and CRP and all these things I don't really know about, but it's really cool. And even thinking about hunting. So my fiance is, he hunts for turkey and deer, and, which I was very against for the longest time before I- had an understanding of hunting at all but now I know that hunting is actually a very ethical thing if you're consuming that meat it's the most ethical way to get meat off of your own land but anyways there's ways you can set up the land to be more conducive to the deer and different animal populations so yeah I'm going off on a oh, really big so tangent there but it is fun I love that yeah so yeah I'm that's so kind of that's kind of my hopeful note, but thank you for sharing your hope as well, because I know this information, especially for the audience listening, this information, it's heavy and it's it's scary and it's screwed up, like beyond comprehension, how dark and twisted a lot of this is, especially regarding these big companies and the government and things like that. But I ultimately think that the, the these small decisions, the small scale stuff will become big scale one day, even if there's people that so are too. like, oh, it's the little guy versus the big guy. And it's like, nope, I think you can, that's not an excuse. I think you do the right thing in your community for yourself, for your community. And it just, it becomes exponential. So. I totally agree. I think, it, I think that it, I think that it's all going to work out. I just think there's going to be a lot of pain in the process, but yes, people like you and then your listeners who are waking up to it and Oh, this was something I wanted to discuss too. Like, I I think that the future. So I went and I got my health coaching license and everything when I was getting better. And I, because I just wanted to help other people feel better after all I learned. And I still think that 
it's health coaches are going to be the ones that are really guiding the future because there are so few functional doctors. If you are lucky to come across one, they aren't all good for one. Some are amazing and some aren't. And they're really expensive and they don't hold your hand. And so much of it is behavior change involved that is really hard. Unless like you have, your knees are on the ground and you're begging just for anything like that will alleviate some of the discomfort, which, you know, sounds like your case and mine. It's really hard to make that behavior change to feel better. And so I just think that health coaches are going to be so important in the next decade in, in guiding people back to health and being available and accessible. So I'm such a huge like supporter of all things health coach and nutrition coach. Yes. And there are more and more health coaches and nutrition coaches popping up every single day. I know because working in that industry, I'm like, wow, this is very saturated, but I'm happy about it because, you know, more people can be helped. But anyways, yeah, this has been incredible. I already know that I want to have you on again because I'm like, wow, we've already been recording for quite a bit, like 45 minutes and we should likely stop but i would love to have you on again in the future and hear more updates about what's going on and even with the little or your docuseries that's going to come out eventually oh yeah we can promote that all the things but amazing thank you that's great thank you so much for having me one more thing before you go are you subscribed to lifelong podcasts have you left a rating and review Are you following along on Instagram at lifelong underscore pod and at holistic with Heidi? If you're not doing so already, consider doing it to support our show and to help spread this message near and far. Thank you all and we'll see you next week.